This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Well, it should be, but instead it's Buzz Eisenberg in for Bill Newman. Here in the studio with Monty Belmonte, always fun. Hi, Monty. Always a pleasure, Buzz. I'm usually in my car listening to you, and now I'm in my the studio with you. You poor thing. You're a captive audience now. You could change the channel in the car. That's true. I am so thrilled. I'm always thrilled to be with um, Vice President of MTA and Professor Extraordinaire Max Page. Um, and today we also have the President of the, NP, eh, the MPA, the MTA, uh, Mary Najimi. Hi, Mary. Good morning. It's great to be with you. It is so nice to have you here. So, Max, hello. Hello, Buzz. Good morning. So, we have the current and soon-to-be outgoing president of the MTA and the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and uh, we have the vice president and president-elect, Max Page. So, let me start with you, Mary. Um so when does your when does your term actually end? I will be uh, my last day will be July fourteenth. So I've got about five weeks left to really get through my shortlist uh, and then pass the baton to Max and Deb. Is it a short list? It's actually a long list. <laughs> it, it's the it's the conclusion of a very long list of things that Max and I have accomplished. Uh, and, you know, our, my, accomplishments, my accomplishments with Max have far surpassed what I ever imagined we could have done in four years. So could you tell us uh, about some of the more significant accomplishments? Yeah, let me, let me first frame, I think, how, how I characterize our four years. Our four years have been a process of our members awakening to their collective power, really understanding what it means to act in solidarity with each other, with students and families, and with other MTA locals across the state to win critical learning conditions for our students, the working conditions that our educators need to serve our students, issues of racial justice and common good issues that uh, be, that start in the local level with some things that were won in the contract, all the way to significant things like winning the Student Opportunity Act. That was the $1.5 billion in new school funding for our urban communities. And then there's a lot of smaller, well, I can't say smaller, around the pandemic, we won significant health and safety measures to repair ventilation, uh, to have kids masked, educators vaccinated. So we literally were protecting the health, safety, and the lives of our students, our communities, and our educators during the pandemic. Wow, you have had a very busy term. And with you has been Max. Max, oh, what do you have some questions for Mary? Yeah, I, you know, um, Mary just laid out these, you know, an, an incredible four years we've had. And it's, but I, I thought, Mary, I'd go back, you know, long the, you know, long before the pandemic, which of course seems like many, many years ago. You know, when we started in 2018, like three weeks before we started, we got the Janus decision. Um, well, actually, I think, yeah, we got, I was, I can't remember which it was. I think it was actually the Supreme Judicial Court threw off the fair share amendment from um, the ballot. And then uh, a couple weeks into our term, your term as president, mine as vice president, 
the Janus decision came down from the Supreme Court, um, basically saying, you know, there anyone can decide to be in a union or not on a work site. And so people feared, you and I feared what might happen with that. So what was, what did happen? I mean, do you remember yeah. way back then? It's, it is hard to remember, but I do remember the one-two punch, right? It was in the jaw and then in the stomach. Uh, and Max, recall you and I were both on the board. So as board members, elected board members, we had been preparing for Janice by creating a program where members were knocking on the doors of members to talk to them about being in the union. And it was it was more revolutionary than we would have imagined. Just a simple conversation from educator to educator about how are you doing, will you stay in the union, was one of the components of our success. I think the other components were that we pivoted uh, to a deep organizing program to win school funding. At that moment, we were transforming our bargaining so that it was more open to our members and to our communities. Again, like I said, centering issues of racial justice. Members began to understand that staying with the union meant that they had a vehicle to win and change the conditions that they needed in order for them to be the educators that they aspired to be when they came to this union. Um, there's a deep sense, Max, you hear people talk about burnout all the time. It's actually not burnout. It's demoralization from working in a system under, uh, for decades that make us do things that violate our core, like teach to the test, that show disrespect at the bargaining table, uh, that don't pay our education support professionals a living wage. So we began campaigns to take all of those things on, and that's why members stay in the union. And so, um, Mary, before we move, move on from this, that decision, that Janice decision, I'm going to throw you a perfect pass, the kind of pass that was not being thrown last night in the Celtics game. I thought you were going to make a UMass football reference Sorry. there, Max. You didn't even go for UMass yeah. football? Come on. Did, did you like that? I, 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 like I know it. you'd appreciate that, Monty. You know, we, we, if you remember, there was a fear that we might lose 20%, 25% of our members. So I'm just going to ask you, what happened to the membership of the MTA over the past four years? Oh, by the way, it actually increased by maybe five or 10%. So not only did we not lose that 10, we've gained. And again, it's because we're, we're both in a political moment. Look at non-unionized people like Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, and then look at unions like the uh, workers in the John Deere factory. Look at educators in Chicago and UTLA. This is a moment in time where everybody recognizes that the injustice of growing wealth inequality, um, how the rich got richer during the pandemic, and we are constantly be asked, being asked, and not only asked, but now expected to do more with less. So again, when you actually have a union that says to people, when we fight, we win, and encourages people and teaches them how to build relationships with their students, their families, and in their communities, um, and give them the resources they need to fight, they start winning and they believe strongly that it's the union that is the way to create a just society. So we're talking with my friend and president of the MTA, Mary Najimi. Um, Mary, that, let's just quickly go 
you know, emphasize that other huge victory that we that uh, got got kind of clouded over a bit by the pandemic. Um, when we came in in 2018, the, the legislature had been in a big debate about school funding and they failed in the summer of 2018. It looked like it might go back to the drawing board. And at that point, we launched something called the Fund Our Future campaign. And you just you mentioned the, the, the $1.5 billion. Maybe just explain what what that victory um, has and could and will mean in the coming years as it rolls out. That's right. So there is a school funding formula that is designed to deal with the structural racism in funding. Because schools in communities of color with low income backgrounds um, high immigrant population don't have the tax base <clears throat> to pay for public education the way schools where I work, Concord Public Schools does. So the state had a formula to make up for the difference and that formula rapidly became out of date. So that fight was to ensure that we, we uh, make the formula relevant to the times and 40 districts, again, mostly urban districts with low income backgrounds and communities of color, won the significant portion of that funding. And over seven years, they will have a massive infusion of money that's going to allow them to provide much more support to students in terms of social emotional learning, um, English language support, smaller class sizes. We have to, and Max, I know you're passionate about a living wage for our education support professionals, and I know we'll get to that, but it's now possible with the Student Opportunity Act money. Um, and so we are on the path towards dismantling some of the structures of racism that are built in to public education. Frankly, it's built, structural racism is built into every institution. It's not new or unique to public education. So Mary, we only have a couple minutes more. So maybe talk about, um, you know, the things that you're already starting to talk about, the things that you you know I'll be continuing on with, but also your, where, where you hope to be or what you, what kind of contribution. I know you don't know exactly what you'll be doing on July 15th, but what you hope to still focus on and what are the, what are the challenges ahead? Yeah, so I will still be an MTA member um, and I can have my activism with the MTA through that. Uh, but also I feel the, the ways that I can continue to be useful to the education justice movement is to help grow the fights that, you know, you were going to be picking up. And that is, we have to start, we first and foremost, the most important thing on the docket is winning the fair share amendment. That is dedicated $2 billion to go towards public bridges, roads, transportation, public education, including higher education. And the beauty of that is that is a progressive tax structure that is asking the multimillionaires to pay their fair share of taxes. So we don't, the common person is not going to pay more taxes and the common person is finally going to benefit. It's time to really look at the transformation of our education pedagogy, our curriculum instruction, and tie that to the fight to get rid of MCAS as a high stakes test, because that has narrowed the curriculum. It has excluded uh, curriculum that represents rich identities our students bring to the classroom. 
And we've only taught to the test. And it's frankly, it's a racist system and it's punitive. I think the third thing that's critical, we have an amazing team of education support professionals. They're paraeducators, bus drivers, clerical staff, etc. There are 63 locals where our education support professionals are fighting for a living wage. And in Somerville, just this week, they had an amazing victory that the starting salary of all ESPs will be 35,000. We call that a victory, but in all honesty, uh, who can live on that? It's a victory because they were making 17,000. Um, we have to have a, a similar campaign for our, our adjunct professors. Well, listen, and, as you know, finally, <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's the fight ahead of us. No, finally, you were I about to say, I'm sorry, Buzz, go ahead. No, uh, we interrupted. I interrupted Mary. You were about to say finally, and I don't know what came after yeah. that. You know, finally, it's it's just winning autonomy, respect, and dignity, and that is the center of every single fight. Well, as a re retired educator and a member of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, um, I am so grateful, Mary Najimy, for all that you've done um, by. And you, Max, uh, what you have done and what you're going to be doing on behalf of uh, the members of the MTA, you're securing the future of our children and therefore of us. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for all you've done and continue to do. Max, good luck. And Mary, good luck in your future. Thanks, Thanks Buzz. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. All right. Have a great day. We'll be right back after these messages with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Pacific Printing in Northampton has been a leader in screen-printed and embroidered apparel in the Pioneer Valley for 30 years. With 8,000 square feet of production, Pacific Printing produces thousands of custom garments for businesses, schools, teams, and events. Let the team of Pacific Printing create a professional look for you. Visit us at Damon Road in Northampton or OceanUpPromotion.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley Co-op. At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, we believe in a hand up, not a handout. Habitat's mission to provide home ownership opportunities to low-income families is unique as it requires partner families to work alongside the many volunteers that are reaching out to help them. Each Habitat partner family provides at least 250 hours of sweat equity 
or physical labor toward the construction of their own home, other Habitat family homes, and special projects. We believe this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder joint effort results not only in a better finished house, but that this shared work experience makes for a better community. If you believe everyone should have a decent place to live, that home ownership brings strength and stability to families, and that everyone deserves the opportunity for a better future, we could use your support. We're Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. We build homes, hope, and community in both Franklin and Hampshire counties. Learn more today. Please visit us at pvhabitat.org. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. I am so glad to be here with Representative Lindsay Savadosa. I, I never get to, I, once I got to talk with you on the air, I think. That's true. I think it was for Community Legal Aid, actually. We you came have. in to talk about all of the incredible work they do, keeping people in their homes and helping them with unemployment and, and pretty much any other legal issue that, that comes down the pike for My folks. heroes. I was lucky enough to be on that board for 24 years, and I watched... Um, just amazing services, difficult, you know, underpaid, overworked. Absolutely. And, and not enough staff, right? Because the number of cases they're getting, they cannot meet the demand. And that is something we hear from them all the time. And I know I refer constituents to them constantly. Um, I do know, too. It's just the, the place to go. Does that add to their burden? There is not, there are just not enough legal services available and people do really need them. So community legal aid is, uh, they should win our local hero award, I think. Well, speaking of services for people who really need them, you've been busy in the mental health arena. Yes. Could you tell us what you, what's been going on? Yes, I, I might look a little blurry-eyed, not that anybody listening would know that. <laughs> she looks perfect to me. <laughs> well, we got it's Monty in. who looks blurry-eyed. <laughs> yeah, it was a late night for me too, but for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we were, uh, we got home around one last night after voting on a bill related to mental health in the House. Uh, we had about 60 or so amendments to work through, which can take a lot of time, but people were really excited to, to dig into this bill. And my, my poor aide, I said, you need to put together a graphic to explain what it does. And she said, it's 88 pages. How do you expect me <laughs> to come up with one? So if you look online, I think we have about six that describe the various components of the bill because it does a lot. And I, I think, you know, personally, one of the things that I've been most interested in is the uh, unrolling uh, or uh, the rollout. There we go. Not unrolling, unveiling rollout of the 988 number, which I don't think a lot of people know about. It's, so tell us about the 988 number. Yeah, the 988 number is actually a federal mandate. And it's a number people can call uh, both for suicide prevention, but also for behavioral health, for crisis intervention. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think the government has recognized that there needs to be a different approach. It shouldn't just be 911 for fire, cat in a tree, actual crime. There needs to be something different. And that's what 988 does. And so the federal government has a very specific plan. This number is coming out in July, this July, so in a few weeks. Uh, and then there's a whole plan about how then who's going to respond to those calls. What is that going to look like? And it's not just Massachusetts. It's every state in the country. 
It's, you know, I, I was talking to, um, I, she's going to be a guest on my show. I think on Wednesday, she is the president of Everytown for Gun Safety. Oh, fabulous. Um, and, and Rena was saying there's nothing good about this daily mass shooting phenomenon that we have and this, this increase in, in violence throughout the country, except that it has shined shine a light on mental health issues. And uh, as has the George Floyd uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, in a way that, um, shame on us, but we don't customarily think as much about it. So I'm so happy to hear that the legislature is onto it. Yes, and there's, um, I brought my, my uh, cheat sheet because there are so many pieces of the bill. Please read from it. 988 is one part of it. Um, another piece is workforce development, which I think is something, um, if you talk to any business owner, organization, pretty much anyone, they talk to you about uh, how difficult it is to find people. And particularly in the field of mental health, a lot of these jobs are entry-level jobs. They're lower paid. It's very hard to find people who want to come in. So the legislature did some work yesterday in trying to create scholarships to, to help encourage people to get into that field. It's critical. The need is growing. We know during the pandemic, I think all of us recognize that, you know, perhaps a little mental health care every so often is useful. Uh, and so we're trying to make sure that people see this as a viable profession. And we're going to just need more and more people. So if anyone out there is, uh, you know, high school senior thinking, what should I do in life? There are some good options. You're here. You're here. And what else has been keeping you busy? Well, um, do you want me to keep talking about this, Bill, or would you like me to talk oh, about Oh, no, more? yeah, please let's I keep mean, talking about was... that. I, you still have your cheat sheet. So I do have my cheat sheet. sheet. Yeah. Well, there's two two other pieces I'd love, I'd love to touch on, and I won't go into all the details, because as you can see, it's many pages. But I think um, one thing that I've had constituents call about, and these are the most heartbreaking calls, um, are, are parents whose children are sort of at a breaking point and they need to go to an inpatient facility and there are absolutely no beds available and they end up being what we call boarded in an emergency room. So that can mean days. It can sometimes mean weeks. Uh, the situation during the pandemic got really dire. I mean, we had, we had cases of families who had to travel out of state to find placements for their children. So what we're doing in this legislation is creating this portal so we can see easily where all the different beds are available and where we can get people. Now, I know there's some pushback. People say, oh, we shouldn't be committing people, but there are situations that are extreme and we do need to get people into that care. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting, this idea I had first heard about, they're doing it in the panhandle of Texas, right? Not necessarily the most progressive place in the whole world, but they developed a system where they can check and see which hospital has openings. So police are not just driving patients or uh, ambulances are not driving patients to hospitals where they get dropped off and then there's no one to offer care. And then, especially in Texas, the next hospital is 300 miles away. So I'm really grateful that we're, we're stepping up and, and Does that mean it. there will be a sort of dispatcher or just that everyone at each hospital will know what if it's a bit So the dispatchers will be able to see that. And we've included dispatcher training as well, because while 988 is fabulous, you're like me as a child. You had that number nine one one drilled into your head, right? So we know there's gonna it's gonna take time for people to remember nine eight eight. So we've increased dispatcher training for nine one one as well, so that people are 
getting into the right services. And we're not just, um, you know, I think sometimes we throw everything in the kitchen sink at people. You call, fire, police, ambulance, they all show up at your door. Really, you just need a social worker. Um, so we're trying to make sure we're getting the right response out uh, with this legislation. And it's not easy. This will not solve all of the problems. But I think these are really big first steps uh, at a time where, you know, geez, if we'd done this five years ago, it would have been better. But here we are today doing it. Uh, anything else on your cheat sheet before we take a break? Last one, uh, school-based mental health. So Ooh, uh, increasing uh, increasing mental health for students at school. I, I say this all the time. I know it. She, she's deeply embarrassed when I do, but I have a ninth grader. Um, and so we see the things that they've been dealing with. Just coming back into school this year after being remote, uh, the stress of being 15, and, uh, and then all the th- hard things that happen in the world that they don't really know how to compartmentalize. School-based mental health is is important and making sure that students can stay in school and talk to someone rather than having to leave during the day or try to find those services elsewhere is, uh, I think, a good investment for the state to make. I'll say, especially since, you know, under 23, most of these mass shooters that we read about are under 23. Um, and um, suicide is the largest cause of death it for is. teenagers. It It's so important to have school-based mental health. This is important stuff that we're talking about. I'm so grateful the legislature is on top of it. Um, and a unanimous vote, I believe, right? I believe so, yes. I will admit to being a little blurry-eyed towards the end, so I was like, <laughs> I'm a yes. <laughs> well, can we finally eat dinner? <laughs> but yes, it was 988, a, 988, after... Just before, before we take a break, I will tell you that I was talking to a 10th grader last week Ooh. who knew all this stuff about how many particulates per mi- million are in the atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you're like 411. You have all this information. <laughs> and I got this blank stare... Because they never heard of 411, so there you <laughs> well, go. Well, for anyone listening, now in Massachusetts, that number is 211 if you need to connect to state really? service. You don't know that doesn't even work anymore? I, I don't know, but we could try it we're after gonna, the we're break. We're going to call it on the break. <laughs> I want my legislature to do something about this. Yeah, I used to dial zero and get the time. <laughs> oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, too. The sound at the time. Yeah. We're going to be back with Lindsay Sabadosa right after these messages. Stay with us. Sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Yeah. Oh, baby, how This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton City Council is giving the stamp of approval to the mayor's $48.5 million budget. The spending plan was unanimously approved despite contentious talks between the mayor, city, and school officials. The budget for the new fiscal year has increased 5.75% from the previous year. The city of East Hampton is placing water use restrictions due to a mild drought. The restrictions are effective immediately and limit the use of water between the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Residents may only use water once a week outside those hours. Watering of livestock and the production of food is allowed. No word on when the water restriction will be lifted. Governor Charlie Baker filed a $56 million bill yesterday to fund a settlement in a class action lawsuit over the COVID-19 outbreak at the Holyoke Soldiers Home in the spring of 2020. The governor presented the bill to the legislature, which must ultimately vote on a supplemental budget item to approve the taxpayer-funded payouts to survivors of 84 veterans who died of the virus and 84 more who were sickened but survived. And the Massachusetts House unanimously approved a bill Thursday designed to expand access to mental health services. Democratic House leaders said the proposal addresses a variety of pressing needs, including acute psychiatric care, the behavioral health of young people, strengthening community-based mental health services, 
and investing in the behavioral health workforce. Another key goal is expanding and enforcing existing mental health parity laws, which are intended to ensure that insurance coverage for mental health care is equal to insurance coverage for other medical conditions. Taking a look at the forecast, mostly cloudy for today with thunderstorms likely high in the upper 80s for the weekend. Tomorrow, partly sunny, mid-60s. Sunday, mostly sunny. Temperatures staying in the mid-60s. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El comité de la Cámara que investiga la insurrección del Capitolio aprovechó su última audiencia pública del jueves para centrarse en la presión que el entonces presidente Donald Trump impuso a su vicepresidente Mike Pence para que revocara su derrota en las elecciones de 2020, a pesar de que le dijeron repetidamente que era ilegal hacerlo. Dijeron los asistentes de Pence al comité del Congreso que investiga el ataque del 6 de enero de 2021 contra el Capitolio. El comité está tratando de mostrar cómo esa presión incitó a una turba enfurecida a sitiar el Capitolio ese día. Pence, que presidía la certificación en el papel ceremonial tradicional de vicepresidente, no cedió. Los legisladores del panel de nueve miembros y los testigos que testificaron en la audiencia descubrieron que la decisión de Pence evitó una crisis constitucional. En la mañana del 6 de enero, mientras Pence emitía una declaración pública en la que dejaba en claro que certificaría los resultados legítimos de las elecciones, Trump le dijo a miles de sus seguidores frente a la Casa Blanca que esperaba que Pence reconsiderara. El comité mostró un video de ese meeting en el que Trump dijo que si Pence no lo complacía, no le agradaría en nada. Esa presión afirma el comité puso a Pence en peligro inmediato después de que los amotinadores marcharon hacia el Capitolio y reclamaron por su muerte. En un video reproducido por el comité, un partidario de Trump dijo que había escuchado informes de que Pence había cedido y si lo hacía, iban a arrastrar a políticos por las calles. Cuando Pence evacuó el Senado y se refugió en el Capitolio, los amotinados frente al edificio gritaron ¡sáquenlo! Se construyó una guillotina falsa en el National Mall y la gente que irrumpía en el edificio gritaba ¡cuelguen a Mike Pence. El comité también mostró fotos nunca antes vistas de Pence después de haber evacuado a un lugar seguro en el Capitolio, incluida una foto en la que estaba leyendo uno de los tweets de Trump. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we are back with Representative Lindsay Sabados, maybe Representative 411, because she's giving me all the information. We called 411 during the break, and it appears to still be functional. Well, not completely functional. It was going to direct me to, like, I have to push one if I wanted this, that, or the Businesses other. Businesses. Yeah, and, so. and I mean, but we, you know, we could have taken it all the way down there. It just wasn't, it wasn't nothing there. Right. And so still... for, for people who don't know what that means, it means that instead of using Google, you could dial 411 to get the <laughs> location and phone number of a business. And then they used to be able to connect you right from there. Yes. And both Lindsay Sabadosa and my parents um, would get mad at us for doing that because I believe there was an additional charge. There was indeed. It appeared on the phone bill. So they would find out after the fact, but they were still angry. Well, I'm older <laughs> than both of you and there was no charge back when I did it. And, <laughs> but the thing is when I did it, It was a human, not someone, not something that sounded like a human. Oh, yeah. Which is what happens now. So I think there was a human when I used to call, too. When I was very young, there was a human, and yeah. then they, they transitioned. The human was so much better because they could understand when you said a name. The, the right. machine did not always understand. It was more fun to prank call a yes. human. And a human was happier to try diverse spellings of different last names, right? right? There you go. <laughs> It's true. I liked it back when there were humans. 
Like my, my friend's last name is Sinkowitz. I do not know how to spell that. It might be S C S C. Not sure. And the human would help. Yeah, right. The machine right. was like it hung up on you after mm, three times. Right. No man that's C Y. So, what's exciting you that you're doing right now? Well, it's the end of the session. Um, so we are really going quickly towards that July 31st date. And so there's there's a couple things. You know, we're I'm excited that we we just passed the conference committee for the Votes Act. So we do have a primary date. We do have a plan for how elections will be run in the fall. We have made mail-in voting permanent, which um, in case anyone is wondering, is a completely safe and effective way to vote. Um, despite what you uh, you might hear from former presidents, mail-in voting is actually, uh, there. You, there's a higher chance that you will be struck by lightning than you will find voter fraud. So um, that was a really good move, and that was that was also done yesterday. It was a quick vote on that. Um, and then we're looking at, at a lot of things. We have a lot of conference reports out, so that we're going to be working on the climate bill. We'll take another look at sports betting when they come back with that. Um, you know, I think we also know that there are going to be some bills that we can't quite predict uh, what they'll look like yet. I think uh, many of us have been on a Supreme Court watch. I, I follow, what is it, the SCOTUS blog on Twitter, which oh, is maybe good. the best place to get information. And if you're a little nerdy like Lyle me. Lyle Dennison, for those oh, who want to check it out, he's great. Dig into what all of those cases are saying and, and why justices are, are ruling the way they are. So that's a lot of fun. Although we are watching the court for their ruling in Dobbs uh, versus Women's Health. Yeah, it scares me that you've been having fun reading the SCOTUS blog. The SCOTUS blog is so much fun. A- it's well, like doom so scrolling. Fun. It's it's a little doom scrolling, but it is so interesting to hear why the just like what their justifications are for their rulings. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but it used to be more fun. It did used to be more fun. I agree. Um, so we're we're waiting for the the Dobbs versus Women Health case, and and we are preparing a response to that. I know I get a lot of emails from people saying, "Why haven't you done anything yet?" And I know Connecticut has moved forward. New York has moved forward with legislation. Uh, the Senate. Uh, did something in the budget as well. I think the perspective from the House is really we need to see what the ruling is. We can't just respond to what we think the court might say. We have to respond to what the court actually says. And so right now we have plan A, B, C, D, and E lined up based on what the ruling is. And we're, I think, all on bated breath every Monday and Wednesday to see what uh, what might come out. But, um, you know, I'm continuing to push very hard to include the medication abortion on public college campuses component in that bill. And then uh, we have another piece that has gained a little more traction because it's part of the Beyond uh, Mass Beyond Row uh, policy pro, uh, agenda that they put forward. That's the ACLU, Planned Parenthood and uh, Reproductive Equity Now. And that is a piece that eliminates co-pays and deductibles for full-spectrum pregnancy care, so reproductive loss, pregnancy, and abortion. Um, I don't know if any of that will be included, but we're trying to make the pitch that if we are expanding access, making sure that we address cost is a huge component of that. And so uh, I'm very hopeful that Massachusetts' response will be very comprehensive and a little bit larger even than what Connecticut and New York It makes me so proud to, you know, we already are probably the most progressive abortion laws in the country, I think. Um, I think Maryland beats us, actually. Um, Maryland and D.C. uh, have, uh, you know, they don't have limits on the number of weeks one can obtain an abortion. And I know that... It's 24 here in Massachusetts. It's 24 here in Massachusetts. There's, you know, there's wiggle in that because the way you calculate pregnancy is a a little bit different um, from doctor to doctor. And the culture here... 
makes wiggle appropriate. Yes, yes. I mean, there's when when a patient goes into a hospital here, a medical at, at a later term, a medical board is convened and they review the case to sort of determine if it fits within the parameters of the law. So we are very um, particular about it. Uh, you know, those cases, though, and I, I realize this is a topic that gets very fraught for people, um, particularly because we see a lot of premature births um, that are, you know, people are thrilled that their their newborns are, are with them and, and survive. But these cases are usually the most heart-wrenching of cases. And a few weeks ago, um, an extraordinarily brave woman um, by the name of Kate Deaton shared her story with the Boston Globe about her pregnancy. And I, Kate is actually a friend as well. She's become a friend over the last year because she'd reached out early to share her story and uh, to listen to her talk about what it was like to have a very uh, fatal fetal abnormality and to still be told, well, there's a 5% chance your fetus might survive. So we Mm. can't do the procedure here. She was actually made to travel uh, to DC where they uh, performed an injection and then required to travel back to Massachusetts to go through labor and delivery. Um, and so her case is, is really an example of, uh, you know, where we didn't get it right, where there are other things that we can and do. Is that the work that you're talking about, trying to get that right? We are. And, you know, this is a part, it's always a combination of legislation and regulation, right? Like it's never, you can't just pass a law. You have to watch how that law is implemented because we do these great things and we're very proud of ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back. But if we just then turn our backs and move on to the next thing and forget to monitor that implementation and see what DPH is doing and what the governor is thinking and watching how the division of insurance rolls out those regulations, then we miss the ball. And at the end of the day, we're passing laws because we want to help people. If we're not following up, we're not helping people. Well, let's end on a, uh, I, I just want to share some good news with you, um, as opposed to mental health and abortion. Let's <laughs> talk about my friends in Goshen, who are so delighted to have high-speed internet. I mean, we are very valley-centric here. Yes. We're in Northampton, and but there are hill towns. I live in one of them, and, and I abut Goshen and Cummington, and they're just waiting and waiting, and finally it's happening. You must hear Good stuff from your constituents there. It's very exciting. And I, I've gotten a lot of emails for like, I am finally emailing you from my house, <laughs> <laughs> which has been uh, been great. I, you know, I, I, I was able to be in, before redistricting happened, I was able to be in Montgomery when they finally got wired and it was extraordinarily exciting. And so to watch this kind of roll through all the communities, I've long heard from people who say, I can't sell my house because nobody wants to buy a house where there's not internet. Sure. It really changes things. People's ability Especially to Especially if they have small home. kids. Who wants to be in a house that has no internet? Exactly, really? right. Because you need it for homework. My, my daughter's homework is entirely online at this point. And How so are they going to watch the new Miss Marvel Disney series if they don't have the internet? I um. mean... Yes, Monty, but how are they going to read Steinbeck's Chrysanthemums if they don't have the internet? The library? No, they, it's all, all online oh, now, okay. all okay. online. And you can check it out from the library there online. We go. That's true. The Libby app. I use it all the time. Well, well you two left me in the dust with how are they going <laughs> to... <laughs> I had other things They're going to get wired because she is... Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Super <laughs> <laughs> Even though the sound is 
Of course he's worried about what's on Disney. Thank you so much. It was so great to be in the studio with you, Lindsay. Thank you. Likewise. It sounds like you've been doing great work, and go home and get some sleep. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody, we're going to be right back with uh, The Art Beat with Donabelle Castings right after this. This is Bill Newman, In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy. Save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Beer Heaven at Cooper's Corner in Florence with Beer Mike. Mountains Walking Brewery in Bozeman. This brewery was started by a guy who grew up in Taiwan. The name Mountains Walking comes from a 13th century Zen philosopher named Dogen. And he basically said something along the lines of, when you understand the walking of the mountains, you understand yourself. This is from their seasonal sweets series. And it's a sour ale with banana, maple syrup, cinnamon, and lactose. Huh, these beers are so weird and I love it. This one, I think it's got about 2,200 pounds of banana puree per batch. That's about how many bananas we buy a week. Super banana-y. Smells like fried plantains. Oh man, I like this. And then I smell the cinnamon too. This one I just want to contemplate. Part of that whole philosophy and, and what the brewery name is about is it's something to stop and think about. You hit the nail on the head. It's almost like a banana cream pie. Find your favorite beer and your next favorite beer at Cooper's Corner, Florence. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 101.5, 1400 and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages 5 and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Art Beat Goes On with Donabelle Cassis. Hello, Donabelle. Good morning, Buzz. Great to see you, sort of, this morning. Um, <laughs> Great to... Meaning Friday. that she can't see him, not that there's anything wrong with being with but Buzz. I, yeah, no. <laughs> I, 
I know it is. And we're a, virtual today. Yes. So. Yeah. Yes. Because I could see Donavel, but Donavel can't see me. I definitely get the better deal here. Absolutely. That's so freaky. what? Okay. What do we have in Artpeak so today? So it's Friday. Yes. 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 So you and me gallery is a pop-up gallery space in Greenfield owned and operated by artist Scout Cuomo. And this Saturday, the show, So Many Ways to Draw a Ghost with works by Chelsea Granger opens from 5 to 9 p.m. And Scout and Chelsea are here with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Now, 115 Hope Street is the address for your gallery, Scout. I love the street name because it says so much about the story of how your gallery started. Please tell us about that. Um, wow, yeah, it was on a hope. <laughs> um, so I bought the house and it had been abandoned for about nine years. A tree had fallen on the space and it was filled to the ceiling with rotting furniture. And then when COVID came through, it just felt like it, I don't know, spirit kind of moved in and was said, just clear out the space and make a gallery space. Um, so it became an open air market that first November um, during the election time. And it was a really great way to work through things and come together as a community, you know, small, specific community, but yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it really was the main impetus behind that. But I mean, I know this was also a time when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Trump was elected, and we are, were in the throes of a serious pandemic. And you're like, what do we do? Yeah, and then saying that. this, this tree happened, and you're like, oh, I'll just open up a gallery space, like you say. <laughs> and Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I was like, I have to do this. Yes. She, maybe she's the one. That. She was the spirit who came through and said, it's time. And so this gallery space is in your 1,800 square foot renovated garage. Just tell us briefly how that transformed. I mean, I know you just said what it was filled with, but you had help, I imagine. Yeah, um, actually, my neighbor, Ray, was the first person to help me start clearing everything out. Um, Ray is someone who's pretty unassuming looking, but I think he really, he watches out for the neighborhood on Hope Street. And um, I, yeah, it really helped me understand that like relying on other people and not going it alone was very significant and powerful, especially as far as like building things and creative um, community. Um, and then I started feeling more at peace to to ask other people for help. Like, do you think that maybe, you know, and so leaning on people's strengths um, taught me a lot. And, you know, this space is sort of a testament to that community building. I mean, I think when you first opened, it was, I think you showed a pop-up space with just people who wanted to show work and talk about work. But, you know, in a COVID safe environment, open air seems to be the theme of like being able to see work and be safe and um and share and i think yeah. that's such a, an important thing that we need to continue to do um, as makers and people who uh want to build community and so the death of ruth bader ginsburg ties you to the current artist and show i believe uh chelsea granger you have a show and it's called well now first of all before i even say anything about the show you used to live in Western Mass. Yes. Is that, is that the yep. connection to Scout? And now yep. you live in Connecticut. So um, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. I grew up in Southwick, Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, feels Excellent. like my home. 
Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So the title of your show, which is opening again this Saturday from five to nine at you and me gallery in Greenfield, the title is called so many ways to paint a ghost. Please tell us about the title. Um, let's see. So there's been a lot of death in my life and coming back into an art practice coming. I've worked through a lot of grief through painting and drawing. And I would say since these major deaths in my life, drawing sort of a spirit realm or um, it was sort of me working through finding my footing and imagining multiple dimensions. And my mom was one of the people that died and it was a sudden death. So there was a lot of um, grieving happening. It took me a while to come back into my art practice. But when I did, I was very drawn to constantly drawing like different ways of um, visually articulating spirits or ghosts and so they've changed forms and it was just i write a lot in the morning when i have my coffee i just do the like stream of consciousness writing and there was one morning where i just like wrote that and i was like yeah i had there's been so many ways uh yeah so many ways to draw a ghost uh yeah just made a lot of sense to me now you're a painter in case people aren't familiar with chelsea's work and some of the imagery um you know, like you said, there's sort of these spirit realms and these different ways that you're drawing ghosts. Now, you say that drawing spirits was a helpful part of me working through my grief, and they've changed. The way you've drawn these spirits have changed over the years. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was very much this, um, when my friend Ruth died, I was there for her death. I was in the room during her death, and then my mom's was sudden death, and it felt very sort of like otherworldly, I couldn't make sense of it. There was like nothing solid. So a lot of the ghosts and spirits were sort of like starry and ephemeral and, and sort of blending into the background and the foreground and layering. And then with time, as my grief has shifted, there's almost something these days that can be a little bit comical where they've like become a part of my world in a way that's like, I can have more of a jokey human relationship with the people in my life who have died. Um, so they're, yeah, so they're just all different ways of um, imagining the way that these beloved people sort of haunt me, but in a sweet way, the way that they like walk with me through my day to day. Gosh, that sounds so beautiful. Now tell us about the neon in your work, especially yeah. the flowers. Yeah, um, I think what I, I didn't really put it together until I was writing my artist statement where I was like, okay, that's so interesting. My work is death and spirits and ghosts and then I constantly am drawing flowers and it's I didn't even I'm just thinking about this in this moment but when Ruth first died the only thing I could paint or draw was flowers and I think it was just because I was connected to beauty um, and the way that when people die often there's people are bringing a lot of flowers and I think the first when I first started drawing again it was someone had brought me some peonies but so I think about mm -hmm just that like beauty of the flowers and then the neon i think i've always just been i'm either drawn to very like neutral like tans and grays sort of like the color of like winter i really like when especially around this area when it's like all the like dead fields like those colors and then the neons um yeah i've just always been drawn to them they pop they they definitely yeah, they really pop. pop and there's something you said about keeping us awake yes and if we're if we're awake what are we are we, does that mean being present or is that being, what does that mean to you? I think it does. I mean, I think it's connected to death and grief for me in the way that the first many years after my mom's death, I, I really struggled. Um, it was more of the like depression side of 
a grief. And then with time, it became the like celebration of life. Uh, and so I think the neon to me is sort of, um, I have a book that I've been working on off and on for a long time and coming out of depression and grief, one of the things I say in it is that like the neons became neon again. It was almost like I couldn't see the life or the brightness of life. And then they started to come back. Mm, that's so, that's so on point. I can really understand and feel what that means. And, you know, as looking at some of the work that you had posted, what will people be able to see this Saturday when they come to the show? Uh, oh. uh, this Saturday will be, I, Scout and I started working on the show, I reached out about a year ago. So most of the work is from the past year. And it's mostly paintings and drawings. All of my work, except for a few, is on paper. A few are more like tapestry style, painted on cloth. Um, yeah. Well, I'm excited to see it. Quickly, Scout, tell us uh, the hours, uh, COVID protocols, and when we can see the show. Oh, thanks. Um, so real quick, we're at 115 Hope Street. We will be open Saturday, 5 to 9 p.m. Um, everybody needs to park on the street. When you're entering the gallery, please wear a mask. Um, you are welcome to hang out in the parking lot. Um, please be respectful of the neighbors. And we will also be open the following Saturday from 11 to 3 p.m. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to see it. Thank you so much, Scout Cuomo and Chelsea Granger. Congratulations on your show and the gallery. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Donabelle. That was great. I'm very interested in seeing that. So um, everybody, this is Buzz Eisenberg sitting in for Bill, and I hope you all have a good day. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called BIGS. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate. The only Big live Brothers, and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10.